This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In response to the Biden administration's national strategy to help end hunger and promote healthy food choices, a number of schools and detention centers operated by the Interior Department will start offering indigenous food choices. The pilot program makes traditional foods and food produced by tribes more available to those who want them. Coming up this hour, we'll talk about what the program and indigenous foods mean for two key federal institutions. Join us right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Biden administration awarded nearly $75 million to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes and Blackfeet Tribe Tuesday to expand broadband access on tribal lands. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. A little over half of the Flathead Reservation has access to high-speed internet. And that number is even lower on the Blackfeet Reservation at 23%, according to Broadband Now. Tribal officials from both reservations say that's about to change due to a massive infusion of cash from the infrastructure bill passed by Congress earlier this year. The Blackfeet Nation is getting over $33 million for broadband build-out. Blackfeet Tribal Business Council Secretary Lauren Monroe Jr. says roughly 4,500 homes on the Blackfeet Reservation will gain broadband speeds. But he says this is about more than just internet access for reservation residents. Um, a lot of the stuff we're focusing on is telehealth, uh, education, online education systems, economic development, and things like that that would really move the, for- the tribe forward in the direction of being competitive with the outside world. CSKT officials say the $41.5 million they are receiving will lay more than 300 miles of fiber optic cable, connecting hundreds of households to high-speed internet. The Blackfeet and CSKT grants are two of nearly 100 that have been given to tribes nationwide under the Internet for All program set up by the infrastructure bill, totaling $1.35 billion. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. The Los Angeles Times reports the White House said Tuesday President Biden is calling for the resignation of three L.A. City Council members, Nuri Martinez, Gil Cedillo, and Kevin DeLeon, after leaked audio allegedly revealed them engaging in racist remarks. The newspaper over the weekend reported on a conversation said to be of the council members making racist comments about a black boy and indigenous people. Native American council member Mitch O'Farrell is among those calling for the resignation. He spoke out against the remarks during a press conference Monday. This is a heavy and a deeply tragic moment for this city. The court of public opinion has rendered a verdict and the verdict is they all must resign. O'Farrell reiterated his view on the scandal during a council meeting Tuesday, which included protests from the public. A group of elected officials that engaged in racism against an African-American child, that engaged in horrific things said about indigenous peoples from Oaxaca, that, that alluded to some of the old tropes against the LGBTQ community, I don't see how that presence continuing in city leadership is going to allow the city to move forward, 
to heal, to move past this, to reconcile. O'Farrell says their presence on the council will continue to be an obstacle. The controversy comes as President Biden is set to visit Los Angeles this week on a trip that was reportedly already planned. The conversation is said to be from last October when the council members were discussing redistricting. All three have reportedly apologized. As of Tuesday, they were still on the council. The Associated Press reports the Founders Museum in Massachusetts announced this week it's returning more than 100 sacred Lakota items to the Oglala Lakota tribe. Clothing pipes and other items believed to be linked to the Wounded Knee Massacre will return home to South Dakota. A ceremony is being planned for November. The repatriation process has taken decades. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There's no reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. As part of the federal government's recently announced initiative to address hunger and nutrition, administrators of BIE-run schools and BIA-run detention centers are starting a pilot program to offer traditional Native foods. They will be indigenous food hubs with healthier foods sourced from local communities. The program comes with nutrition education along with culturally appropriate food preparation instruction. It's related to the Food Distribution Program, or the Commodity Food Program on Indian Reservations. Yep, you know the one. The USDA started a similar pilot program there earlier this year. It's another step toward Native food sovereignty. Today we're talking to people involved in the programs. We want to hear from you too. What do you think? Do we need more Indigenous foods in federally run institutions? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us now is Wijipong Garriott. He is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs. He is a citizen of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Wijipong, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here and to uh, have a chance to connect with all the, the listeners throughout the country. We're, we're, we've, we, we all grew up listening to this program, and it's an honor to be here. Well, it's great to hear you are a fan of Native America Calling. And, and please start us off by telling us more about this new Federal Food Hub pilot program. What's been the catalyst to provide students and inmates with more indigenous food choices? Well, well, as, as you mentioned in, in your opening, uh, the administration is, is committed uh, and, and has set ambitious goals uh, around uh, food uh, and nutrition. And certainly uh, that is a, a big big issue uh, throughout Indian country. Uh, I think that when we look back at our history as indigenous peoples, uh, food 
and uh, the production of food, whether it be growing, gathering, or hunting, um, has always been central uh, to our, our ways of life, uh, central to our ceremonies. Um, and at the same time, it, it, it kept us incredibly physically fit and, and healthy. And, uh, you know, I think that when we look at, at the uh, kind of unfortunate uh, history uh, over the last uh, several centuries, um, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, look, uh, in, in addition to, to land, uh, to culture and language, uh, one of the, the things that was, was taken from us uh, was our food. And, and this is a part of a, one component, of, I think, of a much uh, larger uh, revitalization movement throughout Indian country. And uh, it, it's our job as, as federal policymakers to, to be responsive to that. Um, we're also uh, very well aware of, uh, you know, the, the negative uh, health uh, statistics and impacts that, that many in our community face with high rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. Um, and, and, you know, resulting in, in lower quality of life and, and lower life expectancies. And uh, food, nutrition, and diet uh, it has an incredible uh, part to play in that along with exercise. And so, uh, you know, we need to be able to put uh, good stuff in our bodies, uh, which in turn is going to help uh, keep us strong and, and healthy, uh, keep us there, – there's also connections to – you know, our, our mental capacity and, and emotional health with food as well. Uh, in many instances, it's, it's healing for us. And, and at the same time, uh, you know, there's an economic component here as well that it's important that, uh, you know, we continue the work that we've been doing with the Buy Indian Act to be able to source uh, food uh, from Native vendors and Native producers uh, and then also, you know, I, I think that, that there's an uh, ecosystem and cli climate component here as well, that when we're uh, growing uh, food using uh, indigenous uh, agricultural methods, sometimes people refer to that as, as uh, regenerative agriculture. We like to talk about it as uh, indigenous agriculture, that it's good for the land. It's good for the environment, uh, and, and it helps uh, us live in, in, in harmony uh, and balance. Uh, with nature. So this is one of those initiatives that, that is really cross-cutting, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised uh, that, it's a, that when we do things in an indigenous way, that it's a cross-cutting and, and it impacts uh, all, all aspects of life. I've heard it said before that food is medicine, and it very much sounds like that is the inspiration here behind this new program. So tell us more about how you folks are, are planning to roll out this pilot. There are 55 BIE-run schools, uh, there are 26 BIE-run detention centers. Um, where are some of these initial pilot sites? Uh, landed on the exact site yet. Uh, we want to make sure uh, that, that we go through a, a selection process to, to ensure that, that we're successful with this. We don't want to roll something out and, and have it fail. We want to make sure that we have a, a good buy-in and, and capacity um, because, you know, to, to be able to, to change the process uh, within two kinds of institutions uh, is, is, a, is a, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot. We're talking four, four and four, but, but it actually is because we're, we're going to be, be, you know, tackling, uh, you know, decades worth of, of uh, kind of standard operating procedures. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of components here. Uh, part of this is um, we need to have a nutritionist. Uh, 
and and I think it's about time that that we're uh, bring we're we're going to figure out how to bring one in um, who's not going to necessarily uh, you know go off some of the old uh, nutrition standards, but let's bring someone in and let's develop indigenous based nutrition standards, mm-hmm. you know, with, with some general principles that can kind of go across the board um, and then be tailored to, you know, those specific sites. Right. Because I think if, if we were to look at, uh, you know, nutrition, st- indigenous nutrition standards for, for say the Pueblo people, that might be a little bit different than, than some of our, our uh, nations up in, in the Northwest. Right. So, so it has to be some, some general principles and then, have the ability to be tailored to a specific site um, and, and people. Uh, and, and so that's one component. Uh, then we have to, to figure out um, who are the vendors, who, who are the producers, who are we, will we be sourcing uh, these uh, foods from um, and, you know, figuring out the process, doing business with the federal government is, is a, uh, it, it, it's, it's a specialized area. And uh, it takes a while to, to learn how to do that. So we're going to have to have a, uh, a technical assistance component to this initiative to help vendors figure out how to do business with us because of all the, the rules and regulations that we have to um, uh, adhere to. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have to figure out, uh, you know, how to train uh, some of our, our cooks and, and those who prepare food uh, because, uh, you know, kind of heating food, uh, you know, from, from prepared meals is a little bit different than making some of these meals uh, directly from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big process. And so we want to make sure that, that, you know, the sites that we select have the capacity uh, and the desire to do this and to set up a model that can then be replicated at other sites. Wizi, you you know you're describing a lot of working parts here: vendors and technical assistance, training, a nutritionist, and I know that you've got some really high-profile partners that are assisting with these pilots and uh, some big names in the growing food sovereignty movement in Native America. Can you talk about some of these partners that are assisting DOI in these regards? Well, you know we. Uh... <laughs> But I think I think we all have a, a part to play in, in food sovereignty and and, and helping uh, indigenous communities and and folks uh, who who want to move in this direction to to become uh, food independent, food sovereign. And uh, you know, I, I think one thing that that's important to note is, you know, that doesn't mean that that all your food has to come from one place. I think what's important is that the community is making the choice about where they want want to have their food. Uh, source from, um, you know, I think it also sets up opportunities for us to look at uh, intertribal trade, right? That you know, one one area part of the country uh, might not have bison, but uh, they have wild rice, and and vice versa. So, I think that's important. Uh, certainly, you know, with with the you know administration's uh, announcement around an, an, an initiative around food and, and nutrition. There are a lot of uh, different folks who are going to be coming to the table, uh, so to speak, to uh, help us with this initiative. And, and I think, you know, from an interagency standpoint, uh, we're really excited to be working with, uh, you know, U.S. Department of Agriculture. You know, obviously, they, they have a big role to play uh, from, a, from a technical assistance standpoint, um, from a training standpoint. And I, I think that a lot of times people uh, – 
you know, they, they don't get too caught up in, I think, just regular Indians on the ground, right? We, we don't get too caught up in, you know, it's all the federal government. Um, but, it, but it's important that, that all the components and parts of the federal government are all working together. Got it, got it. And um, one of the wonderful things about Native food sovereignty is going to local, small-scale farmers and other food entrepreneurs. So um, will a lot of these foods perhaps be sourced by, by local Native food producers in these specific communities? You know, that that's the hope and the intent, intention. Uh, I, I think that we want to have a, a tiered approach. And that, you know, the, the first tier is exactly what you said, is, is to look at uh, traditional foods that are sourced uh, locally. And then it would be kind of a, a next tier would be locally sourced foods uh, that, that, you know, they may not necessarily be traditional, but they're, they're grown and produced uh, by Native people, by Native uh, producers locally. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're kind of this next tier is, is going to be looking at what are the other kind of uh, traditional foods and other, uh, you know, foods that are just sourced by Native American vendors, period, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, the next tier after that is, you know, if we're, we're not going to be able to do all of our food, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, there's... You know, at some okay. point, uh, folks are going to need ketchup, right? So, but let's buy that ketchup from <laughs> okay. a native vendor, even if it's value added. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to take a, uh, a short break, but we'll be right back. Some native politicians are in tight re-election contests heading into the midterm election. Even the most optimistic predictions point to break-even or diminished numbers of native voices in Congress. We'll take a look at the Native shoe-ins, veterans, and newcomers showing up on the ballot. That's on the next Native America Calling. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about a federal program that's making healthy local indigenous foods more available at some BIE and BIA-run institutions. Should Native students have access to traditional foods? How about inmates? Join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking with Wijipong Garriott. He is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, and uh, DOI is taking the lead on this exciting pilot program. And Wijip, before we went to break, you were talking about some foods are still going to need to be sourced, uh, you know, from the big corporate people, ketchup, for instance. And I don't know, you might have just inspired a young Native food entrepreneur to start an indigenous ketchup brand, maybe. Well, well, I, well, I hope so, right? Uh, that, <laughs> that uh, you, you know, I, I think that uh, if, if we were to, to go around Indian country, you know, we, we eat a lot of different food. We're, we're influenced by a lot of different cultures, and, and that's, uh, 
that's one of the the the, the parts of, of the, is, is the ability to to interact with other cultures, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, overall, I, I think you know part of this again is is to there's the economic development component here, and that uh, part of you know the idea around having a hub is to be able to have a, an institutional anchor to be able to support uh, the the Native American uh, you know food sovereignty movement and uh, to, to help be a part of a, a much larger uh, ecosystem where, where we're sourcing our, our food, where we're providing opportunities. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, again, it, there's so many different moving parts and components. It gets, it gets exciting, but, but at the same time, it's a little bit daunting. And, uh, you know, we hope that this can, you know, help inspire uh, and provide a model for, for other institutions to be able to, to adopt. Okay. Um, utilize. You know, I hear that that term food hub used a lot as of late, and, and I'm always kind of curious, like, like what exactly is a food hub? Are we talking about like a central commissary or a warehouse? Are we talking more about just a network of, of providers and facilitators, manufacturers? What, what all goes into creating a food hub? I, I think it's the, the latter that you talked about, to be able to, to have a, a, a central network, right, to, to be able to think about it from, you know, uh, a web and, and to be able to, at the center of that web and be able to have outreach uh, in a 360 uh, kind of uh, degree area to look at what, do we, what can we get locally, what can we get regionally, and what are we going to have to look at um, uh, nationally, while at the same time making sure that we're doing our part, uh, you know, from a cultural standpoint, uh, from a, a health and nutrition standpoint, um, to really take the best care that we possibly can with, with those who, who uh, we're charged with, with taking care of every day. You mentioned earlier, uh, maybe perhaps a selection process to d- decide where these pilot sites will be. So will schools and detention centers, will there be an application? How will they go about actually applying to become one of these potential pilot sites? Uh, you know, we don't have anything finalized yet, but I think that we're envisioning uh, some kind of uh, application process, um, you know, to, to show a little bit of that desire. Um, but at the same time, you know, again, if, if we, you know, and also it's important to meet people where they're at, right? Because some of this work is already happening, and there are a lot of people who, who've already pioneered this idea. So it's not necessarily a, a brand new idea, uh, although it may be new for us as the federal federal government to, to be moving forward with it. But uh, there might be, be some folks that are, you know, starting out with very little capacity, and there might be others that, you know, are doing this and they're just ready to take it to another level. So so we also want to be able to to meet the community where it's at. Wiji, thanks for providing all this background. And again, this just sounds like a really, really inspiring new program. We're going to learn more about it. Uh, and we've got another guest now who's going to talk a little bit more about indigenous foods and, and how they're being used in native schools. We've got Foster Knoyer Hogan on the line. He's in Mission, South Dakota, and he is the Lakota Foods Coordinator for a Lakota Immersion School. Foster is Ihunktawan Dakota and enrolled Sikangu Lakota. Foster, welcome to the show. And uh, please tell us a little bit more about this immersion school. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
So the immersion school that I work at, it's called Wakaija Tokeaki Oumsbehoti, and it's um, Rosebud Sioux Tribe's first ever immersion school. And this, it's not exactly public, and it's not BIE. Um, it's quote private institution, and I, I say quote because we don't uh, charge any tuition fees or anything like that. But we're private in a sense where we don't have to follow certain regulations like other institutions do. Um, but we we do have our foot in the door per se uh, in this type of work. We we're pretty proud of our farm to school efforts and our land based learning curriculum in our in our classrooms. Well, it sounds like a, a really progressive school. Uh, you've been had the doors open about three years, and I know you went through the whole COVID pandemic as well. So, Foster Indigenous Foods—they're already a priority at the school, and, and you folks have an existing Indigenous Foods program. How exactly did it start, and when? Yeah, so the institution itself started three years ago during the pandemic, but since it was online, we didn't really have a food program. And then it was the second year where we got to finally start our food program. Um, and here we really support both local indigenous and non-native uh, producers. So we source locally for our vegetables to our capacity. We have a indigenous food sovereignty initiative here that's uh, tribally ran. And uh, we're pretty fortunate and pretty privileged to have the, the largest native managed buffalo herd as well. Um, so we're able to source buffalo, which is a culturally um, relevant food to us as well. So we have them right in our backyard that we source from. We have one harvest every year, which our students and families get to participate in. And um, on our team, we have a fluent elder, and he's he's in there telling us certain parts in the language, which you know sustains their language and culture in that sense as well. So the kids really get to see where their food comes from and really be proud of that, that they were able to participate in this um, cultural practice and know like that's where this tatanka, where this buffalo came from. And they're really proud of that. Every time we have meat, they ask, is this the tatanka we harvested? I'm like, yeah, ah, yeah, it is. And they just get really excited about it. So an educational component is very much at work here. And, Foster, well, heck, let's talk about the food now. Um, tell us, what does a typical lunch look like there uh, in the school cafeteria? What kind of foods are, are we talking about with these indigenous approaches? Yeah, so we, we're pretty proud, and we have uh, donations from our own tribal citizens that donate elk, deer, antelope meat, vegetables from their backyard garden, even you know fruits and herbs that grow around here, like the wild plums, the choke cherries, the wild mints. Um, various ingredients that we incorporate into our meals. And then, like I said, we source locally from our Food Sovereignty Initiative, but also um, our Tribal College Greenhouse and other um, greenhouses in the area. So we get a lot of good produce from them. And, you know, we don't, we're pretty privileged to not be able to have to abide by the, what is it called now? My Healthy Food Plate Standards. So yeah. we have the liberation to do whatever we want, and it's healthier because, you know, we don't need a lot of our kids are lactose. A lot of natives in general are lactose. So here we don't serve milk as a beverage. What we offer is water and occasionally um, hot tea during the cold months. 
And that's per request. The kids love to drink hot tea during lunchtime. And they understand, like, it's it's good for their body, it's good for their mind, their spirit, and their emotions. We, we uh, Our school is founded on four pillars, and one of them being holistic wellness. And that's how we incorporate the, the diet into this. So, so f- they're, they're getting a full encompass right there. Now, Foster, are all of the foods indigenous? I mean, like we heard earlier, you know, some products have to be outsourced, like ketchup. I mean, are there are there any nachos or pizzas or hot dogs or anything like this? Or is it all what you're describing here, these really delicious-sounding indigenous foods? 90% of the time, it uh, tries to be indigenous or at least locally sourced because there's also um, like a pork and poultry um, butcher place that's local. So we're going to source from them pretty soon. But in terms of processed foods, we, we don't do that. If we do have a pizza, it's homemade with like a cauliflower crust, arugula, prosciutto. Um, so really upscale homemade meals every single day that, that we're pretty proud of. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, that sounds really upscale, very much so. Um, and then what about, you know, some of these local providers? I mean, has have you folks been able to support uh, – the local tribal food service industry with, with having a need for all of these fresh, locally sourced indigenous foods? We try. Um, we've had a couple outreach that are interested in the, the, the model that we're creating. Um, it really caught a lot of people's eye in, in terms of like what our kids are eating because they go home and tell their families and that have older siblings in the public and BIE school systems and they're, they're like, you know, wanting that in their own systems. But, you know, working here and kind of seeing what we're capable of here, I, I know that what the BAE pushed out and what the DOI pushed out is going to be really successful. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's definitely healing work and healing takes time. But I can tell in long term, it's going to be super successful. And a lot of kids are going to benefit from this and families for sure. Now, one thing I, I am thinking about is cost here, um, and that's one of the things you know you hear about. Even just the whole American diet is is just gotten so skewed towards these processed foods, and a lot of that is because that stuff is cheap, and you go to a supermarket, and it's the most affordable stuff on the shelf. So, is there um, is it a lot more expensive t- to feed your students these these healthier indigenous options as opposed to a more you know standardized school lunch like what we'd see in in, in other types of schools? I would say it balances out. Um, when you source locally, you're going to get a cheaper, better quality food. Um, but here, and I, I'm making the assumption it's like this elsewhere, but, you know, being in a food desert, we, we're in a crisis of price gouging from non-native businesses. So we have to navigate that as well. But I would say in terms of how much attention and how much gracious and generous donations that we received, um, it balances out and it's well worth it. You know, the cost, we work intertribally as well. We source wild rice from Red Lake and White Earth Nations, Passamaquoddy syrup from the East Coast. Um, so reestablishing those trade systems as well, I think it's well worth it. And you mentioned you are a private school, so it doesn't sound like you'll be eligible for, for any support through this new federal indigenous food hub program. But are there other sources of of funding to promote this type of healthy eating from grants or, or foundations or 
again, like I said earlier, this food sovereignty movement is just really exploding throughout Indian country. Yeah, so we have a really great partnership with First Nations Development Institute. They provide, actually, they have an astounding Native Farm to School resource guide, which is phenomenal. We use that. They provide a technical assistance. Um, Inter, uh, Intertribal Agriculture Council has a resource directory where they break it down into food groups, you know, your dry goods, your fresh produce, things like that. Um, we use that resource directory to source, which is really nice, which is how I found like Passamaquoddy and Red Lake. So those are two really phenomenal resources that I can share right now off the top of my head. And Foster, I'm also interested in learning more about the cultural side and learning more of these efforts. And are, are you working with, with local people or cultural consultants or elders or any other people that just have expertise in this area and, and can come in and be involved in, in everything? You describe the education, um, the, the processing of these foods, and then just serving them and talking about them. Yeah, so our, our students' families, for one, they they all carry knowledge, which is very valuable. Like I said, we have uh, two elders on our team, both fluent speakers, and they, they're able to share what they know. And actually today, as an after-school parent meeting, we contracted another elder and who's going to demonstrate and show our families how to cut bapa, which is a traditional dried meat. So we, we're opening up these opportunities and workshops for families to uh, sustain the language and learn for themselves to take home, which I think is another big component that should be incorporated in this new in initiative. Now, Foster, I'm also thinking about our, our listeners in, in all different parts of Native America, and maybe they're thinking we should do something like this at our school, in, in our community. Uh, any words of advice or recommendations how to get started with um, promoting healthier Indigenous foods in a school setting? Yeah, I mean, just it doesn't have to start big right away. Just start small. We just integrated fresh vegetables one week at a time. Um, we started with beef, grass-fed beef, and now we, we're slowly easing into the traditional meats because a lot of the students haven't been exposed to it yet. Um, so they're a little caught off guard, but just ease into it. It's a process, and like I said, it's all healing. It, it won't happen overnight. There's a lot of trauma to heal from, especially around food. Um, and reclaiming identity around food. So just be patient. That's what I had to teach myself, <laughs> just to be patient and trust the process. I, I really notice just for myself, if I, you know, when I eat better foods, I just, I think better, I feel so much better. And are you noticing outcomes like that amongst the students? Are, are they performing better in their classes? Do they seem more alert? Are, are they, do they have more energy? And are they just, uh, just have a better attitude that, because of eating healthier? Oh, absolutely. We, um, our, our other pillar is focused in like identity and social emotional intelligence. So they're learning how to regulate their emotions and open, openly talk about them. And they're also learning, as of right now, all of the grades, so our K2 school, but all of the grades are operating at least one grade level ahead per state standards. So you really see their minds flourishing and they're thinking critically and able to um, resonate with their peers emotionally. Like, oh, you're having a bad day. Like, what's wrong? And, 
you know, to me, that's very valuable because we need that in our communities in order to heal, right? Absolutely. So these students, these kids, they just really blow my mind away. It's amazing. We're speaking with Foster Knoyer Hogan, and he is a Lakota food coordinator at an immersion school. He's in Mission, South Dakota, and we're learning all about this new pilot program that Department of Interior is developing. It's all about promoting food hubs at BIE-run schools and BIE-run detention centers, and we're going to learn more about the detention center angle to these new programs, and that's coming up with our next guest after the break. If you want to talk a little bit of food sovereignty, if you're interested more in talking about food hubs, what are you waiting for? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We're back right after this break. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's a new initiative by the federal government to improve the meals served to students at BIE schools and inmates at BIE-run detention centers. Are there tribal food providers in your community that could fill the pantries of these institutions? What traditional foods are important to your tribe? Grab your phone, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number is 1-800-996-2848. Joining us from Mille Lacs Reservation in Minnesota is Bradley Harrington. He's a culture and language revitalization advocate and a member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. Brad, welcome back to Native America Calling. Anin, good to be back. Brad, this pilot program will bring indigenous foods to four BIA-run detention centers. How will access to indigenous foods better serve the inmate population? Well... The inmate population, uh, you know, as we get uh, taken out of the communities and then maybe start uh, realizing that there can be a better life for us, reconnecting to the foods that the spirits had given us in order to sustain our lives would help fill the voids that we identify maybe in treatment or just uh, maybe in self-reflection. Okay. And Brad, I understand um, you're a former inmate and you are a reentry advocate. And, and tell us, um, what kind of food is, is typically available in detention centers now? Is it is it healthy at all? Is it good food? Would you describe it as good food? Uh, I, I'd barely um, describe it as food at all, but uh, a little bit of background. I, I served in uh, uh, a life of crime for quite a while, which led me to jails, treatments, and then prison, of course. And uh, food in there may be enough to keep your body functioning. Uh, but yeah, it's um, pretty, I'm pretty poor in relation to what we should be considering food. Mm -hmm. So this new pilot program, bringing these foods into to four 
detention centers, and of course, there are more than 20 across Native America. So um, are, are you excited? I mean, what do you think, uh, what do you think the outcomes will be from introducing some of these indigenous foods among inmates? Um, I believe the outcomes are going to be uh, astounding. There uh, may be uh, a way to um, help overcome uh, as we look into the traumas that uh, Native American people have faced and uh, everything that uh, we, tr we try to do to uh, help you know, people who are overcoming these traumas, you know, it plays out in different ways. Some of us, we turn to crime. Uh, uh, some of us turn to addiction. Some of us both. Uh, and when we're starting to come back and starting to see that our own cultures have solutions for us, one of them being that connection to uh, food uh, would greatly increase our chances of uh, con uh, continuously bettering ourselves as we uh, fill those spiritual voids with these spiritual foods that we bring in and also honoring the spirits who provide who provide these for us and and our relative beings uh, the animals that give up their lives in order for us to uh, sustain our lives as uh, Anishinaabe people Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking, Brad, and um, you know what? There, there could be a cost here, and and I, I just can hear some people thinking to themselves, well, you know, it's going to cost more money to feed inmates some of these indigenous foods, and, and these these are funds that that could be spent elsewhere. What's your response to that, Brad? Um. Well, it's true, right? You know, in a world where we value money over. Uh, uh, life um, that does uh, play a critical role in it. But then also at the same time, if we look at what we are spending money on and the balances of it, if we're introducing better food to our people at an earlier stage, we'll probably be spending less in healthcare in the future. So uh, it, it'll, it should balance out in the end. And then also, uh, if we're really serious about running uh, traditional programs, uh, recovery programs, uh, and then minusing the food aspect out, uh, you know, it'll make it tougher because even eating food, let's say it's non-traditional food, but it's good for you, like the, uh, like the fruits, vegetables, uh, lean meats, uh, you do feel better physically. But now let's say we start adding in the spiritual component, we start aligning our spirits and gratitude, uh, that builds a, another portion of ourselves that has been extremely oppressed for quite some time. Brad, you, you raise a really good point, and, and the, the cost that people aren't thinking about perhaps is, is the cost of what happens when, when inmates and other folks don't eat good food and what that does uh, and the, the, the cost on that to society. And Brad, how involved are, are you hoping to be in some of these pilots? Are, are you going to become engaged in, in helping get some of these programs up and going there at some of these detention centers? Oh, if one makes its way to Minnesota or, or nearby, I'm, I'm always uh, 
willing to uh, to help out the best that I can, share the little bit that I know, and, and help out, especially, you know, having come from or uh, having the background that I do, and then now with uh, what I do, you know, I, uh, it's a complete turnaround. Uh, like I take my sons out to harvest fish, uh, and then we eat it, and then also feed the community, which brings a, a spiritual component. Uh, we uh, tap trees together, um, harvest rice, and the the well-being that I'm receiving, and then now passing on to my kids, who are who are uh, more likely to become criminal themselves just because I'm criminal and and how the story goes. But I see them, uh, that, that chain reaction um, ending with them. They, they play sports in school, they harvest, they take part in their ceremonies. And so just the, the family part is better. And um, if I can pass that on to other people who are incarcerated, that idea and how they can incorporate into their own lives using their culture's pathways. It doesn't have to be Ojibwe. It can be wherever you're coming from. Our people have um, stories and, and teachings related to this. Brett, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today and just sharing your background, sharing um, what inspires you. And, and I'm inspired just listening to you. And I, I just wish you all the success and uh, as you continue on your journey in life. And, and you just sound like a, a wonderful person and so focused on, on Native communities and your family. And um, you're just really, really a wonderful person to talk to. Thank you again. Folks, if, if you got a question, if you got a comment, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number. There's still time to get a call in. Our producers are standing by. We're waiting for your call. Let's go back to Ouija. And Ouija, um, you know, listening to Brad talk about um, how these programs could potentially benefit detention centers, uh, is the approach, what, what's the thought in terms of how these programs are going to be designed, these food hubs with regard to these local vendors and some of these educational and cultural components? Um, is there any thought to how those will be framed a little bit differently, perhaps with detention centers as opposed to schools? Well, you, you know, I, I think, um, you know, one of the, the things is that, uh, you know, we're, we're providing, you know, from, from uh, you know, kind of, in Washington, in D.C., you know, we're unlocking some resources and, and we're providing a framework. But but as, as you heard from, from the two amazing guests, um, the magic happens, you know, with people at the local level. And uh, and, and I think being able to, to provide uh, the framework and, and the freedom um, and where necessary, you know, just getting out of the way. Uh, so that people can uh, take uh, good ideas uh, at the local level and implement them. And I think that that's where, where we're going to see the magic happen is, um, you know, but these programs can't necessarily be dictated from the top. Um, it's about unlocking an opportunity and then letting uh, people shine, letting them bring their creativity uh, to, to those uh, programs. And, and the, the, lo the local solutions is, is where it's going to be at. So um, I, I think um, you know, and, and, and I think one of the, the, the things when, when we have inmates, you know, they're in our care, right? And uh, we're responsible for them. 
and and they're uh, you know in an institution run by us. And uh, I think a truly innovative program would be able to provide some choice uh, to, to some of the inmates. And, and again, we're, we're gonna, just going to have to be able to see uh, where it goes and, and how people at the local level want to implement it. Now, these are pilot programs. And um, what's the hope here? If these pilot programs do well and, and folks are receptive to these indigenous foods being implemented in, in these schools and detention centers, is it possible that at some point in the future we will see indigenous foods offered exclusively at these 55 BIE schools and, and 26 BIE run detention centers? Well, I hope I hope that, that there's a, a significant, you know, long-lasting component uh, that we're able to, to to develop, right? And that again, you know, kind of getting back to this idea of choice, uh, you know, is is do the, the will the the local community, will the students, will folks want to see this? Um, you know, and and uh, you know, it, it takes some time to develop and uh, developing a, a different kind of palette, um, taking your your palette back. Uh, you know, back to, to an indigenous palate is, is going to take some time, but but again, you know, we should we should provide the opportunity and, and the resources to do this as opposed to uh, you know continuing to perpetuate a system where where there is no choice and no freedom to do this kind of work. Hey, I just find it amazing how this food sovereignty movement is is blowing up. And I was up uh, in a tribal community. Well, I was up in Meskwaki in Iowa. Uh, earlier this past summer, and, and I worked with a woman in, in last couple of years. She's just all of the foods that she serves at home to her family. It's all locally sourced, indigenous, traditional foods, and that's that's all they eat. And I'm meeting more and more, meeting more and more Native people, Native families, that are just embracing these foods. And um, so this is just uh, you know another opportunity to do that. And Wizi, how about you? Do you folks eat a lot of these foods at home? Uh, in, in my personal capacity, uh, I, I do my best. <laughs> I was uh, I was talking to a nephew not too long ago, and, and he's going out hunting, and I'm like, you know, make sure you uh, you know hook me up with a with a roast, right? Uh, uh, some deer, and you know, so so we do our best. But again, a, a lot of this is is about um, creating the system so that we don't have to work so hard to to go outside of the system to be able to to access. Uh, the, these indigenous foods, and and the one thing I, I, I'm Lakota, and, and I love uh, on a, on, a, on a personal level, I love being able to uh, try and, and incorporate uh, indigenous foods from other regions um, as well, and and that's that's one of the awesome things about the, the rich diversity that we have in Indian country. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, the, the some of the the salmon that you get up in the Pacific Northwest, and of course down here in my part of the country, the the stews and and the chilies and things like that, and in other parts of the country, it's the it's the buffalo meat. Just so many vibrant traditional foods that that we have throughout Native America. And we see, you know, I'm thinking more about some of these Native farmers, some of these food entrepreneurs, and um, and you mentioned earlier a, a technical assistance component to this and some training so that these folks that, that want to be the, the food providers for these institutions. And uh, that's a whole nother element of, of these pilot programs. And and how do you see some of these these local folks, farmers and other food providers, how do you see them really reaching their true potential through these pilot programs? I, I think that, that there's different levels. Uh, 
you know, and, and there, there are, are tribes that own uh, farms or ranches or, or food processing uh, centers. Uh, so I think that it unlocks opportunities for, for tribally owned uh, businesses uh, at, at the, that are larger scale at the tribal level. Um, but I think it also, you know, creates opportunities for, for smaller individual producers uh, who may not be as large as, as some of the, the tribally run entities. At the same time, uh, I think it, it also opens opportunities for small local folks. You know, maybe they have less than an acre. Maybe maybe they just have a backyard garden, and uh, you know they're they're able to produce a, 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 some surplus uh, onions or tomatoes or, or whatever that may be, um, and to be able to to have an outlet to be able to to distribute to, I think is is incredibly important. And uh, it's not this is not the solution, but it is one part of a larger set of solutions to to help bring about food sovereignty in the country. Okay, Foster, are you still on the line? Yep, I'm here. Foster, you know we're going to have to wrap up here in about another minute, but I wanted to ask you. So uh, there at the immersion school, the the local vendors and, and indigenous food providers that you're working with, are they are they mostly small local folks, families? Or are you working with some of these larger uh, native food brands that that some of us might be familiar with? Yeah, so for the produce and like fresh stuff, it's mostly backyard producers. But in terms of like oils and cornmeal and things like that. It's indigenous-owned uh, businesses. So like Sakari Farms, uh, Bow and Arrow to get the cornmeal. Like I said, Red Lake Nation has wild rice. White Earth has white rice. Um, even locally here, we have a Lakota Youth Development, the youth enterprise that produces locally sourced honey, which is phenomenal. So we source right there as well. So yeah, it's bigger upscale places as well. Well, ah, geez, I've got to remind my producers whenever we schedule these native food shows during the lunch hour, <laughs> I sure do struggle to get through them without wanting to run and grab a snack. But folks, that is all the time we have for our discussion today. Big thanks to guests Bradley Harrington, Foster Kanoyer Hogan, and Punk Garriott. Appreciate y'all joining us today to talk about a new federal program built upon indigenous food hubs. Join us tomorrow as we talk politics. We'll look at the landscape for Native candidates heading into the midterm elections. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. There's no reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.